Hi guys, it's Jess. Welcome back to the Not Carrie Bradshaw podcast where I discuss all things style, wellness, pop culture, and whatever else I feel like talking about with you from week to week. When we last spoke, I told you guys I was going to do my absolute best to get an expert on fashion history as it relates to quiet luxury and all of the things, and I secured an amazing guest for this week's episode. So that's why this intro is very brief. I'm going to let me and this person take it away. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and that you learned some things, that you are entertained, and that you develop a different or an elevated understanding of fashion, luxury, consumerism, all the things. So let's get right into it. always like to give people the opportunity to introduce themselves. You are a very highly accredited person in your field and I don't want to like go down the whole mm-hmm. gamut of, of all of your things. So I'll allow you to introduce yourself, tell the um, audience what you do and why. Yeah, of course. Hi. Well, first off, um, happy to be here. Um, it's a pleasure and an honor. Um, and thank you for sharing this moment with me. Um, my of name is John. I've asked like a couple of fashion historians, like, hey, I don't feel qualified to talk about this topic. And they're like, girl, I'm not doing no more podcasts. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so I'm really happy you were available. Yeah, of course. No, I, I love doing podcasts. I just love chatting. Same. <laughs> I'm a southerner. <laughs> Same, because you're from Texas, right? Louisiana. Okay. Where did I get Texas from? What did I read that I saw Texas? Anyway, they're right there, so I'm going to count it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm born and raised in Louisiana. Um, I use he him pronouns. Um, based in Brooklyn. Um, I did my PhD at NYU in history, and I teach at Parsons. Um, my official title is assistant professor of visual black visual culture, and I also run a digital humanities project. A lot of people know me for that. I'm very active on social media. It's called Fashioning the Self in Slavery and Freedom. And I also do a little curation. Um, I've curated a few exhibitions, one at, at Harvard, where I used to teach, um, another in Indianapolis at the Heron School of Art and Design. And I'm just passionate about anything related to Black art, Black fashion, Black creative expression. I love everything about that. You've made me want to go back to school because I realized that what I learned about fashion was quite pedestrian. Since I started following your Instagram page, I'm like, why didn't anybody teach me this? I am like waist deep in student loan debt and nobody taught me this about fashion. (laughs) Um, So I did undergrad at um, Georgia Southern and my like I'm one of those people. I just went to college because I knew that I was supposed to go to college. You know, like mm-hmm. our generation of Black people, your parents just tell you going to college. It don't matter what you go for, you just going. So mm-hmm. I, I knew I was going to go, but I, I I, didn't feel passionate about where I went or what I studied. I just knew I was supposed to go. And all of my friends were like, oh, I've known that I've wanted to study blah, 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 blah at this HBCU and that HBCU since I was seven. And I'm like, you did? We've never talked about this. So when <laughs> everybody was like, 
applying to colleges, I was like, oh shit, let me get my stuff, like my essays. I just like, I didn't care. So I didn't realize that I wanted a career in fashion until my senior year at Georgia Southern. And I had like space to take electives and I took every fashion course that I could take, but I wasn't going to start over, you know, (laughs) to get a fashion degree. So this is like 2009, the recession. I'm thinking, oh, I'll just like figure it out. I can find a, a fashion job in Atlanta. No, no, you can't. <laughs> uh, or at least I couldn't. And so I uh, started looking at FIT. And so I visited FIT and I didn't really like their master's programs. Like it didn't feel like anything, you know. And so the admissions counselor was like, look at the courses not the not the the title or not the the degree look at the courses and so i ended up studying advertising and marketing communications because it had so many just like baseline fashion courses but also like pr and journalism and media and i absolutely loved it like if i could be a lifelong student i would be a lifelong student <laughs> like how like in the 1700s like wealthy people didn't really have to work so just collected degrees I would love to be one of those girls <laughs> um but one of the the things that I was so happy that I learned about fashion is how much of an indication it is of culture of economies of what we value of what it says about us as people so from your perspective as a very well studied person in this area what do you think is the function of fashion in the world today? Yeah, I mean, it has, I would say it has two functions, um, which makes it a little different than other art forms. You know, other art forms, let's say sculpture or painting, it really is just a beautiful object that you admire for its beauty, but it doesn't really have a function. Whereas fashion or clothing has a function. Um, fashion doesn't necessarily have that. <clears throat> Sorry. Ooh, <laughs> <broke> my throat. <laughs> um, clothing has a function. Fashion doesn't necessarily have to have a function, but more often than not, it does. Um, so it's twofold. The, the, the purpose of fashion in our society, it's, you know, of course, you know, most societies, there's some form of adornment um, to protect you from the elements to keep you warm, to, you know, cover parts of your body that you don't want to be exposed. Um, So there's a functional aspect to to clothing, but fashion also has a, um, there's a lack of functionality that I think is built into the definition of fashion. And that think about heels, like heels aren't the most functional pair of shoes, um, but they look nice. They're cute. <laughs> they make you look taller. Um, they make That's you walk what I was going to say. I'm five, so <laughs> they serve a function for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, they make you walk with a certain amount, amount of grace. So, you know, they're not the most functional form of footwear, but, um, well, let me put it this way. The function is more aesthetic. Um, so I would I would say that's the that's the role of fashion in our society that it's 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 a it's an object of art to be admired, um, but it also has a function. I often say that um, fashion is an art form that considers the body, mm. even if it doesn't consider the body. Um, art 
there's a lack of consideration for the body because there's some form there's some fashions that are just so avant-garde. <laughs> um, but there's always some consideration that you know an arm has to go through this. You right. have to put this on a human, some sort of human body. Um, so that's that's kind of my de definition of fashion. Got it. Um, one of the things that drew me to your page is the way that you talk about the history of fashion, but within the context of, and you also discuss contemporary fashion as well, but it's always within the context of Blackness. And I really appreciate that because I think anyone who has ever worked in fashion or even just as a, an aware consumer, I feel like our relationship with the industry as a whole is quite fraught from the way that clothes are designed, the way that they're produced in, you know, and people of color aren't paid for those. Like there's so much. Um, why is it important to discuss fashion within the context of blackness specifically? Because I'm one of those people, I don't really like to be called a person of color. I like the specificity of I'm black. Like, mm -hmm. and I, you know, things impact us very differently. Black oppression is different from the oppression of non-Black people of color. So within the context of this conversation, why is it important to center Blackness in, in those discussions? You know, thank you for saying that um, because there was a trend maybe like two or three years ago for people to use the term BIPOC. And I was, and you know, there are moments where you, it makes sense for there to be sort of a solidarity amongst like all non-white people. But I mean, different people are oppressed in different ways. And black people suffer from a particular kind of oppression that other people of color don't suffer from. So I don't necessarily always appreciate being lumped in with other people of color. Especially um, when so non-black people of color can be quite oppressive to us as well. So, hmm. you know, like you said, like sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes it's like, let's be clear. <laughs> right. <laughs> Exactly. And so, yeah, I think I think it's important to center Black people in fashion history because we're central to the genesis of the fashion system. So if you, now I'm going to put on my um, historian's hat. <laughs> um, but if you think about like the rise of global capitalism, it came alongside um, one, the displacement of Native people, but also the enslavement of people of African descent. So the two things are coeval. There's a there's a scholar named Cedric Robinson who has a book on on racial capitalism. And so you can't talk about the rise of capitalism without talking about racialization and enslavement. So en enslaved people were key to the genesis of the fashion system because we're enslaved to you know just to use the most obvi obvious example, pig cotton. Of course, that cotton was used to produce textiles that were made into fashion items. Um, but also on the consumption side too, um, think about um, the consumption of textiles on the West African coast, um, which helped propel the slave trade. Um, so black people have been integral to global capitalism and thus integral to the genesis of the fashion system. So you can't consider one without considering the other. In a more modern response to your to your question, because you're right, I'm also interested in contemporary fashion um, scene too. Um, of course, like, I mean, I don't think you can really understand 
like aesthetic trends, like so many, so many trends starting in the early 19th century were appropriated from black people. It's almost to the point where it's imperceptible. It just becomes American. <laughs> now, you said something there because I find myself getting really frustrated when they try to have like the diaspora wars and non-American Black people will say that like we don't have, that Black Americans don't have culture. And I'm like, I need for you to understand that much of the culture that you consume that you consider to be American came from us. Mm -hmm. So what you're actually doing is upholding white supremacy. And I need mm -hmm. for you to know that like, we actually are the originators, but without the context, right? It just gets lumped in. Like, mm -hmm. especially when people outside of the US talk about food and like, oh, American food is like, ah, ah let's be clear, because not mm -hmm. all American food is, you know, mm -hmm. like it's it's a big country. And so again, it's like the specificity and the nuance, like I need that a lot because we do get lumped in. And in some ways it's like, I guess maybe that was the quote unquote American dream. You know what I mean? To just like all of us be one, but when we're not getting the credit and being oppressed, it's like, no, parse it out. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I wrote a piece about urban fashion, quote unquote, like cross colors and all of those like black designers from late nineties, early aughts. And I feel like we had such a strong place in the industry back then. Do you see that ever being replicated? Ooh. I want to be, I want to give you an optimistic answer and not a pessimistic answer. You're absolutely right. There was a moment in the early 2000s where there was, there was a, a, a influx, um, a surge in like black owned brands. I really miss that era. Like, you know, FUBU, Nietzsche, Platform, Sean John. Sean John. Sean, mm -hmm. I didn't even realize until I started researching that piece and interviewing um Emil Wilbekin, where he mm -hmm. I didn't realize how groundbreaking it was that Diddy was like, no, we're not just doing t-shirts and jeans. We're using like textile like we're using luxurious fabrics we're like and he had like a freestanding store on fifth avenue i didn't know how groundbreaking that was and we don't have that now even though the industry would like for us to believe that fashion is progressing in this certain way and it feels like a regression but i'm sorry go ahead answer the question sorry <laughs> <laughs> no you're absolutely right um i would really love to be in a sean john exhibition actually, because people forget, even though it's it's recent, it's it's within my lifetime. <laughs> I might have even been I was a young adult. Um but people forget the like the how groundbreaking Sean John was. I mean, I even go back to like the um the all black show where he cast only black models. Um that yeah. was groundbreaking. Um in any case <laughs> <laughs> um I mean there are Black designers sort of killing the game at the moment. Some of them lean into their blackness more than others. Um, I'm a big fan of big fan of Self Bar. Um, I love the work that he's doing. Um, you know, I'm from Louisiana, so I have to shout out Christopher John Rogers. 
I love Christopher <laughs> Rogers. <laughs> um, there's Brandon Blackwood. Um, so I mean, there are black designers. Um, I just hope that they have the resources and support that they need to sustain themselves because I don't want the same thing to happen to the brands we just mentioned earlier in the conversation to happen to them. Like I want them to build long-standing fashion houses that become like, you know, what Fendi or Chanel. Right. Or right. And I guess for me, like I'm so curious if those brands had had if there hadn't have been that like the boom where it was every rapper was like, well, I'm also going to create a line of flow. You know what I mean? If it didn't get oversaturated and those brands had the opportunity to grow and to build the brand equity that heritage houses like Fendi, Gucci, Louis, like where we would be now. And I look at certain black designers who we thought like had the thing and they were going to do the thing and you know that really scathing but very well reported piece on a certain black designer I was like oh my god like I had such high hopes for that guy like to be the first black designer to show like Paris Couture Fashion Week like what the hell happened? Like, that made me so sad. And then, uh, you know, we had Fenty, the house of Fenty was going to be a thing, but, you know, the pandemic and everything happened. And one of the things that I discovered while researching that story is that we do still look to Europeans to define what luxury is for us. And um, you put out some really great content about the conversation around like quiet luxury and what that whole thing means. And I think our relationship as black people, as consumers to luxury, to the luxury space, it's a really complicated thing because economically we still don't have all that we should have, but mm -hmm. we do, you know, we deserve to take part in, in, you know, the concept of luxury as well. So when it comes to those kinds of, I guess, conversations about the way we interact with luxury, like, do you lean into the, I guess, the activism, quote unquote, part of like Black girls in luxury? Like, that is a really confusing concept for me because I guess I'm just like, well, who told you that you couldn't buy these things? And it just sounds like capitalism to me as opposed to activism. Like, you're what activism do you think that you're doing by showing that you can afford these luxurious items? Like, I just don't get that. And especially mm. because what you're defining as luxurious is still against a European standard. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot to say about that. Let it go. <laughs> Let the chopper sing. <laughs> um, well, first off, let me say I understand where they're coming from. I get it. Like, you know, being a historian of slavery and like understanding that you can map American history onto Black female bodies. Um, and historically, Black female bodies have been associated either with labor or with pleasure. How can I extract labor from this body or extract pleasure from this body? And it, it it there is a degree of like something radical saying that you're not extracting any pleasure from me <laughs> and you're not extracting any labor from me. 
I'm going to enjoy my own body. Um, so I get the, that soft life rhetoric. I don't think it's as radical as it could be um, because you're right, it, it really leans into capitalism and, and into consumption. And the problem with that is that you might not be oppressing yourself or letting people oppress you, but for you to have a soft life, someone somewhere might have to be oppressed. <laughs> and that's my problem with the soft life rhetoric. I get where it comes from. I mean, what to me, I think what I would want people to say, a one amendment to that idea is that really lean into values. Like I want to be respected, just like you have respect. I want respect. I want to be able to be paid fairly. I want to be able to rest whenever I need the rest. I want to be able to, um, you know, buy something and enjoy it the same way you can buy something and enjoy it. And sometimes that's not what they're, what they're emphasizing. They're emphasizing consumption, getting your nails done, brunch, mimosas, vacation. It's more consumptive. And part of me think it goes back to the civil rights era and like a lot of the legislation that was passed in the civil rights era about, um, I forgot what it's called, those clauses, but it was about attending to people in stores. Um, and so one, the way that African-Americans have often asserted their self-worth is through their consumptive power, but that sort of gives power to capitalism. And even though you're higher up in the wrong in capitalism than a lot of people, there's someone below you. Um, so it's important to remember where we came from because it, you know many African-Americans are descendants of enslaved people. And so in the 19th and 18th centuries, we were on the, at the very bottom of the rung. Now the people at the bottom of the rung are, you know, not outside of our national borders, or sometimes they are within our national borders. Um, so it's important just to, to have a, 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 a idea of soft life or um, luxury that doesn't involve oppressing other people. I think that's the part that frustrates me is that it lends itself to this certain kind of elitism. And mm. I don't want to see us replicate and uphold and participate in that kind of system. Like, I don't know if you've seen on social media as well, like these like quote unquote femininity coaches that like, you know, are trying to tell women how to land these like ultra wealthy men. And I'm like, have you ever been around ultra wealthy people? They're not great people to like, to be around and, and, I'm happy that you spoke about values because I think that when we're not grounded in a personal value system, like even beyond like religion, like whatever, having some actual personal values can like keep you grounded because I'm just so curious of like, what part of that life do you want to partake in? Do you want to be a person who has like house staff that you don't pay very well because that's a part of that system as well yeah. you you want to look really deeply into like how this family came to be ultra wealthy because they were then participating in exploitation and are currently participating in that and you want to also participate in that i guess it's and i i also see the people who want to completely separate themselves from the knowledge of being the descendants of slavery or of slaves 
as if it's something to be ashamed of, as if they had control over it. Mm. And I just feel like, can we have more respect for our ancestors, for the ones who survived so mm. that you could be here? So there's that part of it that I that just makes me cringe as well. Like, do not get me wrong. I love nice things, right? And I would love to have like, a really nice brownstone in Park Slope, but I would love to have like a show t- a chateau in Paris. Like we love nice things. We can't really escape capitalism, but to the extent that you want to use luxury to elevate yourself above people who you're actually standing next to, that gives me pause. Mm-hmm. And also when people say that sometimes like people who sort of proponents of the soft life um, will say, like, well, I like nice things. And, and I'm like, well, everyone likes nice things. <laughs> you're not saying anything. That, you're, you're not exceptional in that way. <laughs> I think that's the thing of it, too. And it could I could be speaking from a place of unknown privilege because I did not grow up wealthy, but I have come to realize that I grew up more privileged than I knew. So I always saw my mom, my grandmother, my aunties who just worked really hard, like every woman in my family every person I think in my family has always had more than one job. Um, Like nobody's really just been like big boy kicking it. So I always saw them have nice things and by themselves, nice things. So I guess to me, I'm just like, what revolutionary act do you think you're doing by showing us that you got an Hermes bag and if you're a big enough client of Hermes, they'll just give you those for free. Like, let's really talk about it. You know, anywho, when it comes to the conversation on quiet luxury, mm. I think that people want to know quiet luxury, quote unquote, because I think they want to be able to treat people differently based on signifiers of wealth. Like, I think mm. that people want to immediately know that your shirt is just a plain t-shirt, but it costs like a thousand dollars because they want to know how to treat you instead of taking the time to get to know a person or just treat people on an even playing field. But I know that you had a more um, nuanced and more well-researched answer to the the conversation on quiet luxury because of shows like Succession and even White Lotus, like these shows that really are giving us even a fictionalized glimpse into the lives of the ultra wealthy. What the hell is the purpose and why is everyone obsessed? And why do people want to partake in quiet luxury? Or how do we even define quiet luxury? I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the the definition that people often share on social media, and I, I, I blame TikTok, (laughs) <laughs> I think TikTok is, is is to blame for this resurgence and the idea of quiet luxury. Part of me thinks that it's a reaction to the perceived gains of 2020. So people want there to be more nuance, like, you know, less flashiness. Um, you know, you know, the idea that is that it's more, you know, pared down, muted tones, classic pieces. Yeah. Um, and you know. There's, his, there's a history to those words, and that's that's kind of my problem with quiet luxury is that you don't know the history that you're tapping into. Like, you know, because I'm a historian of slavery, the way 
enslaved people stress was described was often well they don't understand they don't have taste they don't understand color they so they're so they mis mis mash pieces together and so it's often a stigma of being lower class or being a enslaved person or a descendant of a enslaved person a, a lack of taste um and so i think when people are sort of using a quiet luxury language they're inadvertently sort of tapping into that the distinction being made between being sort of classy or tasteful as opposed to being sort of ostentatious or, or being or bragging about your consumptive power um i do want to say something because when i posted my video about my critique of quiet luxury uh i, I had two critique two people two types of people who critiqued that video one was the typical sort of right-leaning angry white person who just told me to shut up <laughs> right but the other was um black people who who participate who like quiet luxury and i like quiet luxury can i say that <laughs> sure same space <laughs> same space <laughs> like i i um i i guess my problem with the idea of quiet luxury is by me participating in quiet luxury i don't think i'm better than someone who who dresses who wears hip hop fashion or someone who is a goth or likes punk. It's like for me, it's a costume that I play with. It, yeah. I don't put any superiority over any other aesthetic with it. And I think some people, when they're participating in quiet luxury, they think they're somehow better <laughs> than other people because they're tapping into an aesthetic that's associated with wealth and privilege and power. And that's my problem with quiet luxury. But I mean, I I I dabble in it. I'm a fashion person. Like it's a look that sometimes you want to like play around with. Um, no, I have absolutely put together an outfit. And when I got to work and looked in the mirror, I was like, oh my God, I look like I want to berate a, a server at a restaurant for <laughs> my dressing on the side. Or I look like I'm about to ask to speak to a manager. Like mm -hmm. I made think that my nails cut down too short. And these mm -hmm. are, can I speak to a manager nails? These are not bad bitch <laughs> nails. This is... I'm so sorry. This isn't cut small enough for me. Back? <laughs> like I don't want to be this person. You know what I mean? Like, this is a I'm, waiting, I'm trying to get back, you know, here. Um, and to your point, like, yeah, it's all a, a costume. And I think that when we, and TikTok, I love TikTok, don't get me wrong. And to your point, I, like, I, mm, I'm probably going to get some pushback about this, but I'm prepared for it. People who wear really large Gucci belts, like with the big, I find those people often to be untrustworthy and I haven't been wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there is something to be said about, and I'm half joking with that. There is something <laughs> to be said about the very obnoxious, flashy versus the more subdued. But these things don't all have to mean these like very specific things. And I also think when we talk about taste, um, especially as Black people who are students or, you know, engage in fashion from whatever perspective. I think a lot about Andre Leon Talley, who you give a lot of, of praise and honor to, and rightfully so, um, but just some of his content and the way that he knew so many references. He always had the reference. He had the receipts. He had the knowledge because he was like in the rooms. Um, I wrote a piece about like my first time meeting Andre Leon Talley and I never got to meet him because he, I was covering an event. It was him, Pat Cleveland and Stephen Burroughs. 
were doing a, a panel discussion. And this is when I first started writing. It was one of the first like professional, like go to this event, cover it, try to get an interview, try to get pictures. And I was so excited because having interned at Oscar de la Renta and working at Coach, working at Barbary, I was always looking for the Black people who were like me. And I very rarely saw them. So I was so excited to be in the same room as Black people in fashion. And I was really disappointed that he kind of regarded me in the same way as white people in fashion did, like saw me coming and was just like, I don't want to speak to anybody. Mm. And I was just like, well, I'm not coming to ask you for money or a job. Like I'm coming to interview you, you know? And I was like, I was so heartbroken by that interaction. And then to fast forward when he was towards the end of his life, the way that he was not taken care of by the mm. industry, the way that he was kind of like hung out to dry and no one really came to his defense in his life. Like while he was with us, you know, once he passed, then it was, you know, whatever. And I really sat with empathizing with what it must've been like to be the only black person in the room. Mm. And I think that maybe sometimes we hold the one black person, the couple black people to maybe an unrealistic expectation because maybe they're not empowered enough to mm. be the kind of advocate for us that we want them to be. But mm. do you have any, because I'm assuming that like as a professor at Harvard, you had to have experienced some amount of tokenism. How do you reconcile the tokenism with this is what we're interested in, this is what we're passionate about, this is what we study, but then looking at the way his life turned out, like how how do you reconcile that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, can I say one more thing about Fight Love Free? Then I want to answer that question. About of course. Tokenism. Another, like, I'm, now I'm going to be a little petty, <laughs> but one of my um, critiques of quiet luxury is that having, like, I went to an Ivy League, and I, I taught at an Ivy League, and I sort of rubbed shoulders with people who would be considered old money, and actually sort of the, the signifiers of old money is, like, a beat-up Subaru, and, like, a hoodie from whatever prep school you went to, or, like, Instead of carrying a luxury bag, they carry like ratty tote bags from whatever gourmet grocery store. You know what I mean? Like, the, so one of my 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 petty gripes with quiet luxury is that actually people with old, with old money actually don't consume in this way. So you don't even understand what you're talking about. So yeah, that's like my, they that's don't my... give a shit. They do not give a right. shit. Yeah. <laughs> but back to your question about Andre Leon Talley. You know, I I have to agree with you. Um, I've met people who had positive experiences with them, but I also met people, people of color and Black people who had negative experiences with them. He could be really prickly and sometimey. That's my Southern slang, some, sometimey. <laughs> oh, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, like you're absolutely right that, I mean, while he was living, I was very critical of him. Um, now that he's no longer with us, I, I, of course, like, there's no point in, like, beating up someone who's not around anymore, who can't defend themselves. Right. So I, I give a lot more grace to him. And so, like you said, it wasn't easy. Like, he was, he really was the only one. 
for a very long time. Um, that doesn't excuse bad behavior, but it might explain some of the, the sort of prickliness that a lot of us experience when interacting with them, um, just because, you know, hurt people hurt people. Right. There wasn't someone to sort of take his hand and like guide him into the industry. He had to sort of like elbow his way in. And so he didn't know how to be always gracious and sort of be a mentor to young people of color in the industry. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's a part of what I find frustrating as well. Like I remember, um, and again, we're not, may they rest, but even looking at someone like Virgil Abloh, like pictures of his team, it's just like, and so I, I just wonder if like moving forward, how we can do better to honor each other in those spaces. And I liked what you said about, um, I think your interview with CFDA about, you know, kind of like, instead of trying to participate in these institutions, making our own. And I think this past Met Gala was a really big exercise in this industry does not care about us because this man said horrible things about women, about Muslims, about fat people, about, you know, this was not, and no one brought that up. No one. And so posting pictures of Lizzo and saying, oh, this is a huge screw you to Karl Lagerfeld because of, and it's like, well, is it? Because she's still there. And mm. you have like black models and black muses and black, you know, with tapes with his huge face on them. And mm. it's like, can we break down an institution that we're also still participating in? Like that's something that I grapple with, like as a black woman, the things that I experienced just as an intern of mm. like, you know what I mean? And it just sometimes, I sometimes wonder, like, are we supposed to make a full divestment from this industry? Like, <laughs> I still struggle to, like, reconcile, like, both things. Because I think even the way the industry tried to have this whole big, you know, post-George Floyd, we're listening and we're learning and we're going to devote this much money to this. And it's like, I'm still not seeing the real change, though. Right. And like, how do we not replicate Andre Leon Talley's life? How do we not replicate, you know? And I think you spoke to it a bit in terms of saying like, we need to like use and amplify our own voices, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but but I, I, I hear the struggle that you're contending with. Like there, there are no easy answers. And let me just say, I'm not fully divested from the industry. Like I, I teach at Parsons. Yeah, I was, a, I was a fellow in the Costume Institute last academic year. I went to the Met Gala <laughs> last like, year. I want to go. That's I'm, like <laughs> I want to go, and I'm sitting with like, what does it mean about me that I still want to participate in these things? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I often have this conversation with people um, because my way of like making change is from the inside, it's not from the outside, and I think some people might look at my trajectory and sort of think I'm sort of brainwashed by the white institutions that I was educated oh, at. <laughs> I don't know how they could do that and also engage with your content, but okay. 
<laughs> I think so, but some people. I, I mean, I get comments from um, from people sometimes that sort of you know, you know, you 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 know, like I I, I followed the the a very sort of traditional academic path in a lot of ways. Like I'm not an activist. Um, my activism is through my scholarship and through like my social media presence. Um, and so I get where people are coming from. I always say that, that there's more than one way to to do things. Um, there's more than one way to um, swallow an elephant, yeah. as the phrase says. And so some people are going to be on the outside throwing grenades at, at the building. And then some people are on the inside sort of making changes from the inside. I always think about, you know, it's really hard to topple a monument. Um, and, some, and sometimes you're just going to bulldoze it. <laughs> or sometimes you're going to hand a ham hammer to everyone and everyone's going to sort of chip away at the foundation to destabilize it. And so I kind of think of my work as like chipping away at the foundation. Like I'm, I don't have a bulldozer, you know, I'm not toppling these structures. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm sort of putting little chinks in the foundation. Right. I Like I, I just don't think that enough of us have enough privilege to be that person that's like, you know, coming through guns blazing. Um, yeah. Is there, or are there any of your top, because I know there are a lot, but if you could do like an unsung heroes, like are there specific like black creators that you wish more people knew about who just like didn't get their just due? Or like if you could do a documentary on like one or a couple of really influential, impactful, um, black people throughout the history of fashion like who would they be well i'm glad that elizabeth keckley and ann Lowe are finally getting their flowers so i'm not going to say them because there, there have been articles written about them and there's a um, my friend elizabeth way is curating an exhibition in delaware on um ann Lowe. um but the person i would say first off i love the show unsung <laughs> Okay, I didn't know if you knew about that show because I feel like that's kind of a deep cut. But okay, yes, I love Unsung. <laughs> right, me too. Also, because I feel like there are people that are Black famous, but they they haven't got a wider recognition yet, and so we recognize them, but like other people don't know about them. And so I really, I really like the show Unsung. So I like that you sort of framed the question around that show. Um, the person that I would do an Unsung about is Audrey Smaltz. Audrey Smaltz um, is still alive. She's in her 80s. Um, and she was, um, she started off as born in Harlem. She started off as a model and was a model for like Ebony and Jet. Um, so she worked as a model, but then she transitioned into retail and was a buyer at Saks, like in the 1970s. And she was the first black buyer at Saks. Then she transitioned again <laughs> and started a, a business called the Ground Crew, which was like they worked as dressers um, at fashion shows. Um, she was also a commentator for Ebony Fashion Fair. And she was Eunice Johnson's assistant. And so she just has so many. She, I was like, going to say, you're, you're naming so many things that I'm so familiar with. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so she's, you know, she was, you know, in Ebony and Jet as a model. She worked with Eunice Johnson. She worked at Saks as a buyer. She had her own businesses um, running a a crew of um, dressers behind fashion shows. She also was queer um, and, and, and came out later in life, like in her 60s. <laughs> and she has a, she, her wife is um, a former Olympian. 
I have to say that I, I think it's really sad that people have to come out later in life. But I also think there's something really beautiful about like there, it's never too late to start living. So mm. there's, you know what I mean? Like, I think there's something really sweet about that. It comes from a, a place of ugliness, but I think that there's something also really beautiful about that. Exactly. Better late than never. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, like many moons ago, I was writing for a um, website that went kaput, shall remain nameless. But uh, I did a piece about like, because I can't remember what the Met theme was that year, but I was like, that is a real snooze. And I think I did like a listicle of actual fun Met themes. Do you have an idea of like, if you could fully curate an exhibit and be a part of the committee, what would your Met Gala theme be? I have three. Ooh, I'm ready. <laughs> um, I would love to have a, a Met Gala exhibition on a Black church. Yes! And like, you know, you know, the church hats and Easter Sunday and the suits and I just think that would be really beautiful. And I think, you know, no one can deny the importance of the, you know, the church and the African-American community and the role of fashion um, in churches. So I think that would be a really good fashion exhibition. Um, instead of opening on a Monday, it should open on a Sunday <laughs> with, the, with the actual service. Um, so that would, oh my God, with the choir and everything, I would live, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, I also want an exhibition on Oprah, and I know for some, when I say this, some people would be like, "Well, they have a sort of like fairy tale Cinderella kind of Megala idea in their head." And it wouldn't necessarily be that kind of like exhibition, but I mean, Oprah's been around for decades, and in front of the camera, and we saw her weight fluctuate, fluctuate, and I think we're ready to have a conversation about body positivity. And about you know black feminism and um i just think it's, it would be an interesting way to think about the last few years of american history through fashion through oprah oh. um i also think uh exhibition on rupaul would be interesting again rupaul's been around for several decades um you know was was a club kid in the late 80s early 90s um i think about the, the rupaul of my childhood and like at an MTV show and, you know, um, had Kurt Cobain's baby. But then there's like the more recent RuPaul, like RuPaul's Drag Race. So there's like, there's several iterations of RuPaul. But also, again, I think we're at a moment where we can talk about like, even though RuPaul wasn't part of the ball scene, it was happening at the same time that RuPaul was running the streets in downtown. <laughs> um, so we can talk about the ball scene. We can talk about queerness. We can talk about trans identity and how I might intersect the drag community. So I think, but also RuPaul has an archiving impulse. So he's he has everything that he's ever won. So it's just a matter of giving him a call and telling him, like, we want to do an exhibition. Um, so those are my three ideas. I <laughs> would live for, I was honestly hoping, like, when they did the, what was the name of the religious theme? Oh, Catholic Imagination. I was really hoping that somebody would show up as like a first lady, which is like a mm. ridiculous hat, pastel, very matchy gloves, mm. um, an air of scamming. You know? 
<laughs> like mega church vibes. Like we anoint you and take some of your money. I really wanted someone to have that kind of vibe. Um, <laughs> I feel like you need to copyright those ideas. Um, but then if I scammed you, I could talk to you about this all day. I really would like for us to get together in Brooklyn and continue the chat, but I'm going to let you go. Um, please tell my audience where they can find you if they want to learn more, like recommended reading, all of the things. Yeah. Um, I'm on every, every social media platform. I'm, I'm a little too active. Um, so I'm on, I guess, Instagram is probably the easiest. It's fashioning itself. Um, but on all the other platforms, TikTok, it's fashioning itself. On Twitter, it's fashioning self. On Facebook, it's fashioning itself in slavery and freedom. That's the full name. I'm even on YouTube, fashioning itself in slavery and freedom on YouTube. So um, it's probably just a search away. Just search fashioning itself or fashioning itself in slavery and freedom. And um yeah, I'm working on a book manuscript right now. Hopefully, I'm only weeks away from signing a contract. So in, in two years, you can, you can read my book, um, which is tentatively titled Negro Cloth. And um, I have an exhibition opening in 2025 <laughs> um, in Delaware at Winterthur. So I have a lot of little things. Um, and yeah, in terms of like reading this, um, Ooh, send me a message. And I, can, I, have, I have syllabi. I teach, so I can. I can <laughs> oh my god, I would love a syllabus mm. because I think the most groundbreaking thing that I read, which was like recommended reading for me, was um, Terry Agins. Oh yes. Which I mean, still stands pretty true. You know mm. what I mean? Like she wasn't wrong then; she's not wrong now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um. So yeah, I'll definitely share that, and I'll put links in the episode description to all of your things. So thank you again for taking time. I know like you're very busy and capitalism is kicking all of our asses. So I truly <laughs> appreciate you. And I look forward to talking again soon. Yes, thank you for having me.